And that's a slippery slope when you develop a relationship with a family and the patient dies and then the relationship is ongoing. You know, there, there could be some conflict of interest there. And so it's just another boundary issue, you know, to be getting involved with your, your patient's families after the person dies. Your job is done. You got to go take care of the other ones now. It probably took me like a couple of years being a hospice nurse, watching death being around me a lot for a couple of years. It was like the people who were willing to talk about it, who were willing to prepare themselves, who were willing to educate themselves. I truly could see how they could live better and die better. Nurse Julie, Nurse Penny, round three for Julie, round two for Penny. So thank you both so much for being here. This is exciting. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We love you, David. Oh, stop it. Why do I smell the sarcasm through the internet right now? <laughs> There's one thing I actually wanted to start off. I mean, obviously everyone knows that you're, you both, you know, death is a big part of your lives professionally. And of course your own personal experiences. And, uh, I was curious, clearly you both are very educational on it and talk about it all the time. Whoever wants to start first, but my question is, what about death outside of the fact that you do it professionally or maybe it blends together? Like, why do you feel it's so important to educate and to discuss? Like, Do you each have your own personal reasons for that? So I grew up with not a lot of exposure to death and I ended up having death anxiety. And uh, as I became a hospice nurse and started watching people dying and how families responded to that, I could see that same anxiety and fear when they were seeing things in their person that they were not expecting to see. And so I just think it's really important to normalize death and dying. Uh, you know, it's no secret that none of us are going to be able to avoid it. It's going to happen to all of us in the end. And if people are prepared for that, they can just have a better experience uh, when they're dealing with somebody dying or their own death. Um, and it can also really help to alleviate that anxiety and fear that we have around death because it's so unknown and so taboo. You know, we don't want to talk about it like somehow that is going to make it happen or make it happen faster. And so what was the question? Oh, I'm just <laughs> you, you it. <laughs> Wait, Julie, before, before you hit us with your response, I, I, I and maybe this could kind of bounce off each other here, but Penny, if you're saying you had anxiety towards it, what got you to overcome that and become so confident talking about it was just specifically your career as a hospice nurse? Yeah. I mean, it started as uh, it started with my career being a hospice nurse, seeing people visioning at the end of life was very helpful to me because I had no religious upbringing. So I had no concept of afterlife. So seeing people visioning their deceased loved ones was something that really made me think, oh, there could be something after this. But also just, you know, being around it so much and learning about it and talking about it, it just it just kind of seemed, one, less scary, but also, you know, just the acceptance of the inevitability uh, really helps. I, I think if people can get to a place where they just accept it, you know, it's going to happen. You don't have to like it, but you have to accept it because there is no other choice. And once you accept it, it just, it kind of takes the steam out of it. You know, like you can just concentrate on living your life instead of perseverating on, oh, I'm going to die someday. What's that going to be like? It's just easier to enjoy life if you're not just thinking about fucking dying all the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. I love that. And also a great choice of word, perseverating. I'm going to have to look that That's up one later, of my but... favorites. <laughs> I love that word. I love that word, perseverating. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, ah, thank you for the reminder. Yeah, I was just nodding. Oh, perseverating. Got it. Okay, no, I love that. Uh, Julian, what about you? What, uh, what, what is the whole, obviously, you know, you put yourself out there already, but what about death makes it so important to you? Yeah, I mean, Penny really hit the nail on the head. I think... You know, I think we all can say the things Penny and I are saying, like people can understand the concept of like, you have to accept that you're dying so you can live a better life. Like, I think people can um, kind of easily be like, oh, of course, you know, but what I found in watching it all the time, probably took me like a couple of years being a hospice nurse, watching death being around me a lot for a couple of years, um, where I really saw it play, like it was really in action. It was like the people who were willing to talk about it, who were willing to prepare themselves, who were willing to educate themselves. I truly could see how they could live better and die better. Like it was very obvious. 
And it takes a while to start seeing that. You have to be a nurse for a while, right? So like in the ICU, I learned a lot of different things and you see patterns all the time. And then as a hospice nurse, you learn a lot of different things and you see patterns all the time. And the big pattern that I blatantly saw was like the concept that we all might say and want to do, but the people who actually did it really did live better and die better. And what I found was like the way they did it was by educating themselves, people who are willing to listen to what, you know, what to expect, what their death will likely be like-ish. You know, we have an idea-ish, especially with specific diseases. So I felt like that was really profound. That was really profound for me to see uh, that people really who are willing to accept and learn and understand about what they're really going to be going through seem to live better and die better. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's what better place to learn than from you two until you experience. I, I mentioned, I briefly haven't spoke too publicly about it, but when I recently had a, a scare of my mom where she almost died, kind of did medically die, if you will. You know, I even if I talk about it all the time, or if, you, if people talk about it, it's, uh, you know, sometimes you just don't know until you go through it sometimes. So, you know, it's part of that. The education process is so important, but even with that education process, when you're in the room experiencing it firsthand, it's just like a different punch to the face. So is there, is there anything that you mentioned patterns, Julie, is there anything that in regards to patterns that you would think is like, is it like a, a hospice one-on-one towards the end of life that you either let people know, or you would want to let people know regardless of how someone's dying? Totally. The hospice 101 I always try to do is specifically talk about how, let just talking about death and dying, talking about, I, I usually, I do try to soften it up depending on who I'm talking to, because you kind of have to read the room. And I, I call it like, everyone has an end of life journey. We specifically know that you are on yours right now. You're on hospice. This is an end of life journey. Here is what yours would likely look like. And to me, Many, and I think Penny and I have talked about this, but like the actively dying phase, which is the very last phase of life, most people look the same no matter what, no matter what you're dying from. But other specific diseases will have things that may happen to them before that, that I also like to educate about. And then the last thing I'll add that I usually talk about is like the actual hospice benefit. You know, like Medicare provides hospice as a hospice benefit and you get certain things and you don't get certain things. And people have tons of misconceptions about what they will receive, what they won't receive, what they can do, what they can't do. So uh, my visit with them during an admission is usually very long because I we've got a lot to cover. And Penny, I want to ask you in relation because you know Julie just covered a lot, you know, a lot of the more, I don't want to say logistics of it, but as a hospice nurse, you know, you're seeing the... F- physicality of dying, obviously, in that, in that whole process. But there's also, uh, of course, with losing someone is the grief process. Have you, have you seen any, I mean, I mean this is a two-part question, perhaps. Or have you, I'm sure you've seen hysteria in some capacity of how people react differently to losing a loved one, which is understandable. Uh, have you noticed any, any like really, I don't want to say wrong ways, but some of the worst ways some people have handled it that you've took something from that in regards to how maybe there are better modalities to handling grief and in regards to death? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've seen that. Uh, I, what immediately comes to mind for me is uh, a man who's, he was living with his mom and she, he was very unrealistic about her poor health status. He really didn't see how, how badly she was doing. And he was encouraging her to get up and walk and go garden and do this and do that. And she fell and she broke her hip. And then she was really down for the count and on hospice. And uh, he was just not able to, he was not able to really care for her in the way that she needed to be cared for because he just couldn't accept how really bad off she was. And it got to the point where he was being neglectful in his um, reticence to medicate her for pain. She was in so much pain. And rather than medicate her for pain, he just stopped repositioning her and she ended up getting a big bed sore. And so then his uh, sisters had to step in and they actually went to court and got custodial guardianship of her and, and a restraining order against him. Well, the restraining order didn't come right away. First, they moved her into a nursing home because he did live in the same house with her. And he was just 
badgering the staff and he, he was assaultive, you know, verbally with them and not wanting them to give her medication. And, and uh, they finally kicked him out and, and the sisters were pursuing a restraining order. And I, I felt terrible for him and I, you know, but he, he, it was his own undoing. He did it to himself and I'll never forget standing outside of the facility with him and, and she was now actively dying. She was dying and he couldn't go see her and he was in tears. You know, he wanted to go see her. And I, I just remember he was this big guy doing a black leather jacket. And I just remember like putting my hands on his shoulders and looking him in the eye and saying, she is dying and you cannot go be with her if you don't stop doing what you're doing. You cannot be getting in the way of the nurses doing their job. You can't be telling them what to do. And he finally agreed to that. And he was finally able to go in there and, and be with her. And then she finally, and she was like one of these ones too, where she was really lingering, lingering, lingering. And probably because that relationship, he was the baby of the family. I saw kind of a lot of my brother and my sister and I in that, a little bit in that situation. My brother would never be like that with staff, but just, I felt for him because he was the baby and he was attached to the mom and, you know, and I felt for him and he was able to be with her and she was able to finally die and he was there. Um, but what did I take from that? You know, people, people sometimes when they're grieving, they just act in ways that is not their character. And you really have to find some compassion within yourself sometimes. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes people are just, it's unacceptable the way that they're acting and they just can't be there and that's all there is to it. But you also have to be able to sometimes just kind of like rise above and and kind of have a, a different view of the situation and understand that their dynamic one has probably already been existing for a long time before we came into the picture, but also that grief can can really wreck people. It can really make people behave in ways that they would never, ever consider if they weren't in such profound, overwhelming um, grief. Right. And I, I think I, I hate, to, I don't like to phrase a question in a negative context. Right? I said, what are some of the worst? But I think the way you wrapped it up is the purpose of the question, because you kind of wrapped it up with some lessons at the end, especially how everyone handles it so differently. And whether you're, there's so many variables, he was the little, you're the baby of the family, the oldest, like, even within siblings, they would handle it so differently. So I, I feel like y'all, y'all have the first glance of the dying process and the grieving process all at once. And you have, you're almost like a fly in the wall, a professional fly in the wall, if you will. Julie, is there anything that comes to mind with like kind of the same situation where if you've, you know, pulled something from other people's grief experience, whether good or bad? I was just going to say, since Penny gave a really great example of, you know, when it's, when grief can really um, create a negative situation, which it sounds like it eventually became an okay one. But uh, I have seen that too, where you, where you kind of have to level with people eventually. Cause it's like, listen, <laughs> this is it. You either get on board or you're out of here because you're creating such havoc. But because, because of that, I mean, but I've also seen the other side. Like, and I think that's what, I think seeing those profound um, experiences on the other way where people have accepted that they were dying, accepted that their loved one was dying. And then because of that, they had, I got to witness these like last breaths where the family is all around, everyone's saying sweet and wonderful things, like one big room of like love and like grace and joy. And, um, and that has been so profound. Those moments for me have been the most profound because when you see moments like that and you can get chills and goosebumps and you're like, Oh, Whoa, that was, I don't know how to explain it except for like, I could feel the love literally. So then you see, you have those moments where you're like, this is how we want them not every death can go like that, right? Because not every family dynamic is the same. And, you know, it just depends. But if we can get people there, uh, it can be such a beautiful experience. It doesn't, like Penny and I are just constantly trying to say, like, death doesn't have to be the scary, traumatic thing. It can still be super, it can be very, very sad and also profound and sacred at the same time. Um, so I think both things teach me things like the, the bad scenario, the good scenario. But when, when, when there's like a bunch of love in the room and it's like this sacred 
peaceful, accepted death. That's how I want to do it. (laughs) If I get a chance to be able to do it like that, that is how I want to go. I want to go like that. The positive affirmation, the positive affirmation, like you see what you don't want to do, but then you also see what you do want to do. And, you know, when you put it in the positive, it even makes it more so that you want it to be that way. You want it to be beautiful. Mm. And, and, you know, like Julie said, there's, there's all, I always say there's going to be sadness. It's always going to be sad, but it doesn't have to be scary. And that's, Mm. uh, that's what really inhibits people from being able to truly be with their dying person, not just physically, which it does definitely inhibit. Some people are like, I can't, I can't even see them. They don't look like I just, somebody just DM me recently and said, my grandmother is dying and I feel so bad. I just can't be with her. I can't physically be with her and see her like that, you know, but also like being emotionally disconnected as well, like being in the room, but not knowing how to be with the person because they're unresponsive. They're, they look different, you know? And so I think it's really important when we can encourage people to say, you know, to say to them, that's still your person. And even though they're, they look different, and it's because they're not living, you know, they're dying, but so they look different, but, but they're still here now and they can hear you and be with them just like you would any other time. What is your prescription? Um, I mean, either of you, if you want me to call your names out, I'll pick out of a hat, but what is your personal prescription? And of course it's not, I feel like it's rarely one shoe fits all, but in your personal mantra and beliefs, start with Julie, how, how do you accept all this? Like if you're, if you didn't have to put yourself in that situation, because I feel like when you're in this situation, it's much harder to see the lessons or see the gifts and stay calm, of course. But how do you personally believe, how would you do it if you were in that situation, not as a hospice nurse, if you were that person as a family member dealing with that shit? Yeah, it's, uh, there's not one, there's not one way. And I do think it's more difficult for people who've lived a life of resistance in general. Like, I mean, I think so many including my, including myself, you know, resist bad feelings, quote unquote, unquote, bad feelings, resist scary, you know, uh, so I think it's very, uh, individualized, but in general, uh, the way I try to get to people from my end as a hospice nurse is through education, the start of education. Like I'm not a counselor. I'm not a grief counselor. I'm not a chaplain. I'm not someone who is even, I love the emotional side of things and I love talking about it, but that's not my skill set. My skill set is to be a nurse and to educate. So the way I do it on my end is through education to try to help help them understand what's literally like literally, physically happening so they can understand it and then hopefully start getting some acceptance around it. So that's how. And then also as a hospice nurse, I do just ask uncomfortable questions. I don't think everyone... I just, I will ask like point blank, uncomfortable questions to get people understanding that like, I'm going to go there and it's okay. And most of the time that goes over well, every once in a while it does not. But most of the time people are like, oh, okay, um, we're going to go there. We're waiting for someone to do it. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know? (laughs) Yeah. I've asked those questions too. Uh, Like, has anybody told you how soon they think he's going to die? You know, like getting right down to it when you have to, because you know, that's going to happen soon. Uh, and so you really have to like go there with people sometimes in order to, to be able to um, hopefully get them to where they need to be, or even telling somebody, you know, that they're dying right now. So if you want to climb on the bed next to them or hold their hand, now's the time. Uh, you know, they're, they're dying right now. You know, it's, it's also different for us because it's not our family who's dying. So we are able to see the forest through the trees where they're not, you know, we, we're, we're looking at it from a completely different perspective. Now, when it's our people, that's a different story. And I can tell you that when my dad died, I'd been a hospice nurse for five years and when the hospice nurse came to give us our consult, I could have just been, I, I may as well have known nothing because I felt like everything she was saying to me, I'd never heard before, even though I had, I'd said it to hundreds and hundreds of patients, you know, but uh, it's different when it's your own person. Now, in my dad's case, I just feel very uh, lucky that my whole family 
I wouldn't say we're death positive. We never really were death positive. My mom, you know, my mom told me when I was a kid that grandpa fell asleep and was never going to wake up again. That was her explanation of death. So clearly we weren't a death informed household. But when we all recognized that my dad was dying, we embraced the the time that we had with him. We each spent time with him. We told him what he meant to us. We had no idea that he was going to die as fast as he did. He was literally on hospice for less than 12 hours. We went out and got him his favorite food. You know, we went out and got him a big Starbucks cup of coffee because he had been on all kinds of restricted diets. And, and we just jumped into action and did those things for him uh, almost just uh, automatically, you know, or uh, like automatic, what do you call them? Automatic. Uh, anyway, we just, you know, automatrons, I don't know, robot. <laughs> going to the all-you-can-eat buffet, getting the food for dad. You know, the plan was to take him home the next day. And we had no idea that he was going to die that night. And he did. And then our grief was overwhelming, but we processed it all together like a family. So that's the only, and, and my kids who were teenagers at the time, remember that we've talked about it recently. They they look at that time as, as it was sad because grandpa died. But it was such a good time for them because we were all together as a family and we grieved together. And so it was really special. So so that's the one experience that I can draw from professionally, my personal experience to, to be able to um, inform how I talk with people about grief. But I'm like, Julie, I'm not my area of expertise. I know some stuff about grief and anticipatory grief. But mostly uh, it's education through education that I think we're able to help people the most. Yeah, I, I mean, it makes the most sense. I mean, the more you were spe- both were speaking about it, I guess, and especially your example, Penny, you're saying you were a hospice nurse for five years, experiencing your own loss, and you still felt like, like, what the hell? Like, what, the fuck? what the fuck am I? What the fuck am I doing <laughs> exactly? And, and I think that's part of it. But also back to what you both are saying, it makes sense to educate. If you are learn, if people are learning from you both about the process. It just it kind of armors you with more bullets in your chamber for when the time comes, and it's not it's not going to be perfected when that time comes. But it's like, oh, I remember that what Nurse Penny, what Nurse Julie told me, and this is normal. Because mm-hmm. like I said again, back to my personal experience, I want to talk about. It. We don't have to get into it, but it was like, I, is this like? Is this? I didn't know if this was normal, and I, uh, but then I pulled back some things. Even y'all have mentioned. It was like, oh no, this is normal, and I would never. I maybe I wouldn't have stayed as calm if I didn't have that information from either of you. If you look at it like you know, when a person is dying, there are so many moving parts. There are so many different emotions and feelings. I mean, the grief process in and of itself has all kinds of feelings that are attached to it: sadness, anger, denial, you know, bargaining, all of that all of the things and then anticipatory grief, waiting for someone to die. And then they die and you feel guilty because you were wishing that they would die faster. And there's like all these different moving parts. And if you can take some of those things out of the equation, so they don't have to worry about those things anymore, like the fact that their feet are purple or that they have a death rattle or that their breathing is strange or, or that they're sleeping more or that they don't want to eat or they can't swallow. Like if you can take those things that are normal out of the equation of things that people are worrying about when their person is dying, there are less things for them to have to focus on. So I think it makes it easier for them to process those grief feelings when they can let go of some of the other things that are are disturbing to them or troubling to them. Couldn't agree more, Penny. Perfect. We love agreeing. We love agreeing, but I want to try to get y'all to disagree. Soon. Now, I, I, I do want to transition. I know we spoke about this before. I just want to bring another thing up, if y'all don't mind. We we spoke about and y'all mentioned all the time. I don't know why I keep saying y'all. y'all? What's going like, on right now? Yeah. <laughs> Hanging around that you keep saying y'all. Y'all. Like, I know you're from New York. Get <laughs> yeah. out of the south. <laughs> Julie, I saw it in your face. I think that's I felt like the energy like, like, blast <laughs> from your eyeballs. Why does he keep saying yo? Who has he been playing around? <laughs> I have been listening to this dude named Morgan Wallen. I don't know if I'm butchering that. Like I'm trying to get into country a little bit, but that's not I've been saying this before. I'm just more concerned as to why I'm saying it so many times in this friggin' podcast right now. Okay, anyway, transitioning, transitioning. <sighs> We, you two have spoke about visioning quite a bit, and I've, I know we've spoke about it on this podcast, but to kind of, I want to ask you, is, I'm not asking if you believe in it, but was there any experience 
that stood out the most that was most proof worthy or is it just the fact that it's so regular and it kind of so common that makes it more susceptible to knowing that it's real is that too much of a weird ass I ask that weirdly no it's not i've had some proof worthy experiences but it's interesting julie and i have talked about this before that you know when people are visioning we don't have a whole lot of conversation with them about what's happening we just kind of watch what's unfolding we don't really get in the way of that we see so we don't we're not like who are you seeing what are they telling you and i did i did have a couple of experiences like that which were the ones that really affirmed to me that people see what they're saying that they're seeing um but we we witness it a lot but it's kind of so commonplace in a way that it's not, I, I don't know, it's not as profound each time we see it or, you know, it's very profound, of course, but, you know, like I've only had a handful of experiences where my patient told me what they were seeing because most of the time when they were doing it, I just observed what and knew that that's what was happening. I didn't like press them for who they were talking to because I had already seen that with other patients where they said, you know, my wife is in the corner. I see her. She's right there. She's coming to get me. You know, like I've had those. So, so many of the times when we see these visions, we just, it's just a sign that we see, or we ask the family, have you, have they been seeing these things? Are they saying there's the, it's kind of like, are, are they, are they having irregular breathing? Uh, how has their blood pressure been? Are they seeing dead people? You know, it's like a symptom of dying in a way. So after a while, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's always profound, but it's less, I don't know, Julie. Oh, no, I was, uh, that's exactly how I was going to say it too, Penny. Like, so to me, what's, what's most fascinating about it and what I found is that like how often, how often it happens. And like what I, I can't say whether I really don't care what it is, but what I, what I liked, like, so it's like, I don't care. Like, do you believe in it or not? It's like, I believe in it. I know that it's not the things people think it is, right. It's not the brain being deprived of oxygen. It's not because of medications. It's not delirium. That looks much different. Like I I can say that this visioning thing that we see in a lot of hospice patients is its own thing. I do know that it's not like, I really don't think it's because of medications or because of, well, I definitely, it's definitely not because of the oxygen to the brain, because most of the time they're alert and oriented and their oxygen's fine. Mm-hmm. So it's more of like, I know what it's not, but I don't know what it is. And to me, it happens just often enough that it's like, it's kind of commonplace and it's not about us, right? As hospice workers. So it would be very, I would think it'd be very strange for a hospice nurse to be like, tell me more. What is it? When did they die? <laughs> yes. Did, yeah. That, that, that's weird. Like, like nurses shouldn't be doing that. Right. <laughs> like there's, this is like, uh, this is more of a, it's not about us. It's about their experience, about the family's experience. And yes, I've seen people visioning and it's, of course, like Penny said, it's always amazing, but I'm not going to like interrupt that to like get a good story about someone visioning. You know what I mean? It's more like just observe and, and you, uh, and it's more surprising to me how often you observe it. And really, if you don't observe it, a lot of my stories come secondhand from family members because they're worried. Like, I don't necessarily see someone visioning, but family will say, Hey, I'm getting worried because he keeps talking to his dead dad, you know? And then that's where you do the education. Yeah, exactly. So, so an example of that for me is, and I, and that's one of the things I asked as a a hospice case manager, or or even when I worked in facilities, which it was more evident then because you would see them doing it. But like as a case manager, I would ask my patients, have you been seeing anything out of the ordinary? Because it is a sign to us that people are approaching the end of their life. It can happen two, three weeks before their death. Like Julie said, they can be completely cognizant and verbal. They're not taking medications. And so it's a question I would ask, but I wouldn't dive into what they were talking about. So like uh, one of my patients, uh, I knew she was failing. She always still wanted to sit at the kitchen table with me and she would barely make it in there. She had lung cancer. And I I asked her one day, have you been seeing anything out of the ordinary? And she said, like, what? And I said, well, like visions of maybe dead people that aren't here anymore. And she said, oh, no, no, nothing like that. 
And I said, oh, okay, because that's normal. And she said, it is? And I said, yes, that's normal. We see that all the time. And she goes, oh, well, then I'll tell you, my dad is standing in the kitchen. And uh, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, and that was it. I didn't say, what does he look like? What is he wearing? Did he say anything to you? How does he look? Is he young? Is he old? You know, like I just said, oh, okay. You know, like, great. Validated her that she saw him. I also feel like if we start pressuring them about what they're seeing, it may feel invalidating in a way. Like we don't believe what, what they're telling us. But, but I also have had the same situation as Julie where, uh, you know, people have called me and said, Hey, I think they need some medication. They're seeing things, you know, they're, well, what kind of things are they seeing? Well, she keeps saying her cat is in the room and her cat's dead, died 20 years ago. Oh, okay. Well, that's really normal. You know, it's comforting to them. We don't need to medicate that away. It's normal. But I, I love the way you put it, Julie. Like it's it's not our experience; it's their experience, and we're just we're assessing for that experience, so we know where they're at in their dying process. But that's the extent, right there. We don't need to we don't need to play into it. We don't need to, you know, like if they say, "I'm looking for my cat," well, let me help you find it. You know, we don't need to do that. You know, we just accept uh, them for where they're at with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously you're validating help too. Cause it was clear she obviously saw someone, her father, and then needed you to validate it. And that was all you had to do. And that was it. And then you exactly. played, you played right. your role perfectly. Damn. Hospice is just a profound, I mean, I know I spoke to y'all already, but every time I speak to y'all, every time I speak to you too, it's just, it's just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. You guys, you guys cover so many different aspects of life and it's, it's making me think of, I just had a uh, episode. I spoke to this guy, uncle Jack, he's a hundred, hundred years old. And so just related to me in regards to you speaking to people that are on their deathbed and at the end of their life where I don't know how personal you two get with your patients. I'm sure it varies maybe from patient to patient uh, and not to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot with, if there's anything you recollect in regards to patients that have been the most profound to you, whether it was just something about the way they lived their life or anything that stood out to you, just orally with their words? You know, most of the time I, I and I, I see, <laughs> I actually did a video one time calling out somebody who said, if I would have known, if they would have told me in nursing school, how many people make deathbed confessions, I would have thought twice about being a nurse. And I was like, I've never heard a deathbed confession because <laughs> I'm not a chaplain. I'm a nurse. That's not my role. I'm not there to get their confessions. I, I think for me, I mostly hear about my patients' lives from their families. Usually when the person is dying, that's when the family starts to reminisce and they talk about their person and I hear these things about them. And, um, you know, and, and, and I can't think of anything that really stand. I, I can recall patients that I've had where, oh, she was a nurse at Harborview or, you know, she was an amazing photographer and there's all these pictures of Africa in the room and, you know, little things like that. But I can't think of anything that was so incredibly out of the ordinary that it stayed with me. You know, I, I remember lots of my patients and how the family loved that person and told me the special things about them. Uh, but I never wrote them down. And I, you know, I, I never heard any deathbed confessions or anything like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I mean, definitely a few patients like stand out in my mind where I can like visually picture them and their families and things about them and probably stood out because of our connection. You know, you're not, you're not close with like, of course, like you take care of all of your patients, but certain patients you like click with more, the families you click with more, or they live longer. So you're there more often, or they have more issues. So you're there more often. It just depends. And there's certain Patients that stand out in that way to me, just in a special way because of having to care for them. And I would say mostly the ones that really stand out that I like to tell stories about are like the, the, like what I was mentioning earlier with like the love, like there's certain, like there's a family right now I can think of, I I don't know the patient's name. I saw them twice, but like I will forever remember this story because it was so profound in the sense of like, I went to go visit him. And he quickly changed on a dime. Like, like he was not, he was dying, but he wasn't like actively dying. But for some reason, whatever happened in that visit, he went to actively dying. And that could have turned into panic fest. The family, like all the family was there. Like they could have freaked out and, and, and not been in the moment. But for some reason, they were able to take what I was saying 
and just turn it and just turn to what needed to be done, which was nothing, and just be there with this with their loved one, saying everything they wanted to say, surrounding this person with love, like a big cocoon of love. And it profoundly changed me to be able, and, and I, I'm like, I want to be like that. I want to be able to switch into this mode of like, we did not know he was going to die today. And now he is. And he died there with me there. And the family was all around and there's no wrong or right way to grieve. Right. But like, um, but to be able to do that and to switch on a dime, like things like that, like I have multiple stories like that, right. With different people. And those are the things that I remember and the people that I remember, even if I don't remember their names, I remember like the feelings that we all felt, the the fact that I was there when he took his last breath and everyone was so amazing in that moment. It really transformed the whole moment. It was amazing. So things like that. I'm thinking about how, you know, like I've, I've taken care of famous people. You know, I didn't even think of that until, you know, I was listening to Julie talking about the love and the family and everything like that and thinking about how, yeah, I've, I've taken care of famous people and I've taken care of people who were nobody, you know, like nobody special. And the ones that stand out to me are the ones who had families that just really cared for them, you know? Yeah. Seeing that dynamic is powerful. I mean, and, and how everyone reacts differently to it. It's, uh, I don't, I don't know. It's, I, to me, again, I, I don't know anything about your field besides the times we've spoken. And you guys taught you two have taught me a lot. But again, that the balancing of handling all that and separating it professionally, and then not taking it home from work, it's just uh, it's it's admirable how the, how the heck you guys do it. Kelly and I were just talking about that. Yeah, you can't you can't you can't do this work if you're someone who is going to take it home with you. You have to disconnect. You have to. Yeah, and Julie's right. We were just talking about this. You. You have to turn it off, man. You can't, you, the, for me, it's uh, like professional boundaries are really important in, in nursing and healthcare period, but emotional boundaries are especially important in hospice. And yes. I've always been pretty good about maintaining my emotional boundaries. Like you, it's not my family. That's not my person who's dying. That's not my family. And I can care for them and I can care about them and I can be sad when they die. But it can't overwhelm me to the point where I can't do the work anymore. You have to be able to separate, disconnect from it. And it's, um, this might sound a little harsh and it cut me because it is like, I think you can't make it about you. It's not about your sadness. It's not about like, I can't do it. And, and if, and if you can't do right. that, then like, you're not going to be a good hospice nurse. Cause you really have to, like Penny said, have good emotional boundaries, um, in order to care for someone well. Otherwise it does kind of turn into like, Oh my God, it's just so sad, you know? And, and, and I'll be honest, I mean, very rarely do I come home, um, super affected by the day. If I'm ever affected, it's always a positive. It's always like, that was amazing. Like amazing what I just witnessed. I'm so grateful for my job, except in a few instances where it can get me. And I was just telling, that's what Penny and I were talking about, which I won't go into the whole story, but basically there's certain situations where I can feel a little helpless, where I feel like I can't do enough or there's not enough to be done. And I do, there's something about that that really can get to me. And then it's like, it's like night and day, you guys. It's like, once I cross that boundary, it's almost like I can't function. I can, it's like, it breaks me. Like I'm out for the day. Like I have to go home. I have to like cry. I have to be in a dark room. I have to eat Jersey Mike's. Like I can't, I can't do it, you know? And, and it's so funny because I could see how if someone felt that way every day, of course they couldn't do this job, but I, I just so very rarely do. And, and I will say there is something in me that must be probably was taught a little bit over the years that I can kind of switch it off. Like, I can feel all those things, but then at the end of the day, I can kind of be like, okay, enough's enough. Switch. <laughs> and it's just, yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad or what that is, but I can do it. I can do it. Yeah, well, I can do it too. Yeah, and I can, I, I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I had one that was so overwhelming and it's, it was a long case. It was a hard case. It was a young man. It was it was just overwhelming. And I ended up just having to, we went on vacation and 
I kept watching the death list and he was never on it. And I finally was like, I can't go back to work because I cannot go see him again. I can't do it. And I had to call in sick so that I wouldn't see him. And then he did finally die. And I was like, I need a mental health day because I can't, mm-hmm. li- literally cannot go see this man again. I said goodbye to him. We said our goodbyes. It's over. It's done. I cannot see him one more time. And and I called in sick. And that's the the really the one time that I think was the most... Um, significantly overwhelming for me to where I was just like, no, I got to call in sick for that one. And Penny, this is the last thing I'll say, Dave, because this is good. I can get on my soapbox with this. Penny, <laughs> that's like exactly what you should do. Like, yes, that is what, that is what good boundaries in nursing is. Perfect example of that. We don't self-sacrifice be- because we think we should, or like, that's the, no, we need, we set these boundaries this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. I need a mental health day. I can't do it. And yeah. that is a perfect example of when, 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 when we talk about boundaries, that's a perfect example. Yeah. I would rarely even go to funerals for my patients because I was like, Nope, I, I, I have a life. I, if I, especially when I worked in a hospice care center, you know, like I would be going to funerals on all of my time off if I chose to do that. And so I rare, I went to really, I went to two at, and I've cared for thousands of dying p- patients, literally thousands of dying people. But I've been to two funerals, and one of them was my husband's great aunt, who happened to be at our hospice care center. So it was like, uh-uh, can't do it. Got to draw a line there. If you, if you're a nurse, if you're a hospice nurse, and you're doing things like telling after hours that you want them to give you a call when the patient dies, no matter what time it is, or and I see this all the time. Nurses who keep their phone on, their work phone on after hours, after, after their business hours, they keep their work phone on just in case they call. I'm just like, no, no, you have a team of, for one thing, it's a little bit arrogant to think that none of your colleagues can take care of your patients if you're not there, you know, but you work these hours, these are the hours you work. And when you're not working, there's somebody else that's going to pick up and, and take over for your patient when they need you. Literally, you have to do that. Like you have to do that. Oh my God. Yeah. You didn't know what you got into with us. <laughs> For me, it's inappropriate. Like I think it's inappropriate yeah. I if agree. you don't do that. I think it's inappropriate. You cannot be the end all be all for this one family. You can't. And if that's if that's the role you want to, if you want you want to play, good luck surviving for in nursing for a long period of time. You won't. You won't. Oh, I could yeah. go on and on. Yeah. I mean, my agency, my agency. We're taught, we're taught, we're taught to be the yes. nurse. We're taught yeah. that if you don't do that, you're not a good nurse. You're not caring. And that's bullshit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The expectation of overtime for nurses is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but I feel like we just launched your, your both both your uh, podcasts just on, on Dead Talks right now. The Penny and Julie show yeah. right now. I love yeah. it. Don't think we haven't heard that before. (laughs) The fact that you brought that up is important because it's a different angle of the conversation that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of nurses out there, I'm sure, feel the exact same way. And and in contrast to the patients who expect certain things from you, but at the end of the day, you two are going to work. You guys are going to work. You have a specific job, just like any other job has a specific mission to accomplish. And as you're explaining it, your mission is very specific. It doesn't, doesn't always come with all these other things that have emotional ties. 100%. That's what I always tell nurses when they have a hard time. Have to remember at the end of the day, this is your job. This is your workplace. This is your job. You you wouldn't like be a cashier at a grocery store and then go home and relive all of that. You won't, you're not going to scan all your food in your kitchen so you can relive what your day was like as a grocery checker, you know. It's your job. And I also I've been fortunate that my agency that I worked at as a, a home hospice case manager, it's the policy that we do not have communication with our families after the patient dies our grief support services like we can call them and debrief with them because people like that like people like it when you call and you say how did it go they like to kind of debrief about it but beyond that our grief support services department takes over but i know there are agencies that don't have that kind of a policy and and that's a slippery slope when you develop a relationship with a family and the patient dies and then the relationship is ongoing you know there, there could be 
some conflict of interest there. And so it's just another boundary issue, you know, to be getting involved with your, your patients' families after the person dies. Your job is done. You got to go take care of the other ones now. Max, I uh, wanted me to ask one question to both of you, which apparently is a meme before we get out of here. What, like, what, how, it's a meme that what is the difference between palliative care and hospice care? Is that true? That's a meme? A meme? Have you seen What's that? What's the meme? Is someone going like, like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, <laughs> Nothing? I guess so. I guess so. You see, I, 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 it's a popular question no. I hear all the time. Like, how it's, would you describe it? How do you, what is the biggest difference between the two? It is a popular question, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty much the same. There's just a few differences. Uh, you have to be terminally ill with a life expectancy of six months or less to be on hospice, and you don't have to have that terminality with uh, palliative care. And you can't seek treatment when you're on hospice for your, your terminal condition. You can on palliative care. Those are kind of the two big, big differences. Um, Julie, you do palliative care admissions and hospice admissions. So you're even more of an authority on it than I am. Really? I mean, I think it's the reason why it's a meme and people never know is because I think, so hospice is federally funded. So every hospice should basically be the same and have the same criteria. Palliative care is uh, very much funded by Medicare and Medi-Cal, but also insurance companies. So it can kind of vary from hospital to hospital, agency to agency. Like one agency I worked for, we'd only see um, palliative care patients once a month, and they didn't have twenty-four hour twenty-four uh, hour number to call. And there was different criteria to be on palliative care. And now this agency that I work for is very different. We see our palliative care patients once a week. They have a 24-hour number they can call. There's different criteria to meet to be on palliative. So I think that's why it can be confusing because it does vary from agency to agency. But like Penny said, in general, I always say palliative care is um, usually like you have a life-limiting illness, whether it's terminal or not. It's maybe too early to tell, or you're still doing treatment to hopefully have it not be terminal. Um, and then it's a symptom management program. So we're managing the symptoms of either the disease or the treatment you have uh, for the disease is making you sick. So we're kind of like managing those symptoms from that disease. Treatment. All right. Meme conquered. If it's apparently a meme, you know I mean? uh, thank <laughs> you for both her explanation. People always want to know, but then the explanation is so long-winded and boring. People ask me, that is like the most asked question when I do a live <laughs> Uh, to yeah. the point where uh, my mo my moderators will now like be typing in the comments. She has a pinned, uh, it's pinned in her, um, what are those lists called on our TikToks? Yeah. You know, they're like, it's pinned. Yeah. Go look at it. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I just answer that question over and over and over and over again. And I'm sick of answering it because I don't, it's not that fucking, it's not that exciting. It's not an exciting question to answer. It's boring. It's like hospice okay, well, regs. That's on, that's, on, that's on Max for bringing that one up, and I and I diluted into it. My understanding is just saying, okay, hospice dying, palliative might be dying. That's kind of a good way to sum it up, but also, okay. <laughs> I mean, hospice it's hard treatment. Yeah. Hospice no treatment, palliative care treatment. Yeah, there we go. We're summing this up. They're pursuing two pathways. Right yeah, on the healthcare yeah. continuum, it, uh, somebody explained the healthcare continuum to me in a in a drawing once, and it was really cool the way she wrote it because she wrote it like you start off with with being like it's all curative healthcare, you know, to maintaining your health, and then you've got palliative care as like a sliver, and then this gets bigger, bigger, bigger towards the end as this gets smaller as people go towards palliative care, and then there's a cutoff. And then there's hospice. And it's not a good model at all. It should be different than that. Hospice and palliative should be incorporated more into the... I think people on hospice should sometimes be able to pursue curative. And I also think they should have a li longer life expectancy than six months or less. But I'm not fucking Medicare, so I don't get to make the rules. But I think, I think the all fact right. that it's a six month or less... Um, and, and people are so uh, reticent to uh, go on hospice because of the association with you go on hospice and you die and they think that hospice causes death and it doesn't, um, that we get people with a really short length of stay and it's, it's really um, unfortunate because there's a lot that hospice can do for people if we're given the opportunity, but when somebody comes onto service and they're actively dying or they die in a week or two, they don't even get to um, take advantage of the program. So that's kind of a bummer. Wow. 
Okay, that clears a lot up. I appreciate you both uh, putting me on on that. Thank you. And uh, I'll get you. It's, we've already uh, gone past the the time that I thought we would be. So I just want to thank you two for being on. Y'all two are amazing. I feel like we can just do this forever, to be honest. Y'all too. Looking forward to you Y'all too. I'm looking. That, that was on purpose. That one was on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> that one was on purpose. Uh, but before we do go out of here, I think we, I'm pretty confident we can get this out in time. Today is what? August, whatever. We're going to get this out hopefully next week. So if you're listening to the past or future, I don't know what's going on, but please let everyone know about what you two have going on and regarding the retreat or this, that, and the other. Yes. Well, Penny and I are doing an in-person retreat this September, September 15th through the 17th in North Carolina, Boone, North Carolina to be specific. Um, so it is last minute, but it's kind of like, Hey, if you're hearing this and you're feeling called to come, anyone is welcome. It's a full weekend. It will be fun despite us saying we're talking about that, but no, I mean, Penny and I are, it's going to be educational. It's going to be a weekend of connecting, um, a weekend of, you know, there's meditation, there's yoga in between our sessions at this wonderful retreat center and, um, a lot of education, and it's just going to be, I'm so excited, Penny. I'm so excited. It's our first one. And prizes. And prizes. Right. And gifts, gifts. We got all kinds of gifts. My daughter is receiving the gifts for us because she lives in North Carolina. So we're having them shipped to her. And she's out. she told me today, Mom, there are so many boxes here for you. There's all kinds oh, of great, wow. really, really quality Oprah Winfrey style gifts. Great gifts. So yeah, it's it's going to be really fun. It's going to be it's going to be amazing. We're really looking forward to it. It's going to be small um, and intimate and and really educational, informative. Um, it's just really great. So and also uh, both of us are on all of the socials, of course, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Hospice Nurse Penny and Hospice Nurse Julie. So we can be found on our socials. And if you want the link to the, yeah, the link to the retreat can be found on our socials or you can go to hospicenursejulie.com and when you go there, it'll pop up information for the actual retreat, all the information, what you need to know. And also I'll put it in the description for anyone listening and of course all their socials, you can find both of them. Any event with you two together, let alone individually, I would... I'd pay money to go see. So I'm not, I'm not getting any royalties for these, anything I'm promoting right now. Just so you know, I just, these two are just two wonderful women. I'll support them to the end. So I want to thank you two so much for taking the time to be on here. And uh, until next time, another episode of Dead Talks with Hospice Nurse Julie and Hospice Nurse Penny. Thank you all. See you next time.